Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Great to be with you. And thanks so much for joining us once again for our top five at five. I think people are really loving this to you know, be able to hear um, from great portfolio managers, um, their big picture thoughts, which you only spent a couple of seconds on, um, but then really drill down into the stocks and, and you know, why one might want to own them or you know, in particular, why you do with all of your years of experience. So thank you. Welcome. And let me just first get your kind of big picture take on the world, or, or I don't know if it's the world, but it certainly has been a difficult time to be managing money from uh, the beginning of the year. So uh, what's your view these days? Look, I'm optimistic. Uh, we have an upward sloping yield curve, and I want to be very clear. I'm talking about the three-month uh, through 10-year treasury curve. It's upward sloping. And we focus on that yield curve because it's been the best one in terms of the yield curves at predicting recessions. And right now, it's upward sloping. Then we look at credit markets, and uh, credit spreads are relatively narrow. They've actually improved recently since the Fed meeting. Credit is the lifeblood of the economy, and we expect the economy to continue to grow. Now, as you mentioned, there's been some volatility since the start of the year, and we were very spoiled as investors going through literally 18 months without a correction. Corrections tend to happen two or three times a year. They're normal. I wish they didn't, but they're a fact of life. Uh, so I see every reason to be optimistic. I think, though, that the easy money that was made coming off of the bottom may be over, and we're more into a mid-cycle environment where active management, picking the right companies, investing in quality companies that can grow, is probably the focus, as opposed to the rising tide lifting all boats, which is what we had going into the end of the year, not surprisingly from the bottom of the prior recession. So having said that, then it sounds as though it in your mind, well, I mean, you are a stock picker. Um, some some money managers hug the index. You're very focused on the company fundamentals, but it sounds like even more so than ever that this is really a stock picker's market, not a market of stocks. I think that it's going to become much more important than it was because it was easy. But now we are seeing the companies that don't have the ability to raise prices getting hurt by inflation. Now we are seeing the companies that have not been able to manage their supply chains run out of product to sell their customers. We're also seeing a bit of a transition within the recovery. It's very normal when you get to mid-cycle for the early stage cyclicals, things tied to housing or tied to autos, things that do well very early in an economic cycle, to become relatively slow versus your later cycle businesses, which could be the ones tied to business spending as opposed to consumer spending. So it's just much more important to be selective, but, it, it, but we're still quite constructive about the economy and constructive about markets. If I just said the two things I said earlier about credit markets and about the yield curve, I would say that the market is going to be 7 to 10% higher 12 months from now. Now that could happen in a very volatile manner, but mm. that's what's possible. I think that the biggest issue is trying to pick 
which are the companies that are going to outperform that, they're going to be less volatile over that time period, and that's how we'll add value. Because even though credit spreads are narrow, they're not on the narrowest levels of the cycle. And the Fed has directly targeted financial conditions, which means they would like to have higher credit spreads, higher volatility. They would like banks to charge uh, more interest on loans. That means that you get a shift towards quality because the companies that don't have good balance sheets are going to get high, you know, they're going to get hurt by the higher rates. Companies that need to raise capital in the equity markets may not get to raise it at such attractive valuations because volatility tends to be very correlated with uh, with valuations. Right. So, David, quality, I want to quality is important. Yeah, but I want I want to break it down for one second. I do want to get into the stocks because time is of the essence here. But um, you know, a lot of people don't really know what credit spreads are, and I, I think you know we have to talk about what they are and why they matter. Right. So what we're doing when we look at credit spreads is literally measuring the difference in yield between a benchmark government security, say a 10-year government bond and a 10-year corporate bond. Uh, and these are time series that we have. It's data that goes way, way back. We can look at the spread between the Moody's BAA corporate yield and the 10-year treasury and get data going back to the 1930s. And it's important because you can see that when companies are, are paying more to finance relative to what the yield is on a treasury, it rations capital and it slows the economy. And that's one of the mechanisms the Fed uses to try to control inflation. So when you're very early in an economic cycle, unsurprisingly, your credit spreads are very narrow. Everybody can raise money at very low prices. But as the Fed is trying to slow things down and cool inflation, the companies that are the stronger credits, in fact, the companies that are sitting on a lot of cash and don't even need to go to banks or the bond markets, have relatively better abilities to grow and finance their businesses. And when so, we say quality, we're talking about the quality of the balance sheet and the profitability of the company. Right. And so, so basically, the narrower the credit spread, the cheaper it is yes. for the company to raise capital. And if the company is facing headwinds, that credit spread widens out. That's, that's one factor in terms of headwinds, whether it's their own company fundamentals, their sector, geopolitical tensions, whatever it is, country, country risk, that spread widens out. It's more costly for them to raise capital. So that's something to watch, though, in terms of, you know, whether widening credit spreads are, broadly speaking, are telling us something uh, imminent is, is going to happen. We have to pay careful attention to it. As equity investors, we literally are paid last. I mean, we all know this about business. You have to pay the bank back first. You have to pay back the bondholders. So as investors in equity, we're actually more sensitive to the credit of a company than the people who are supplying the debt capital to the company. And that's a, a focus we have that I don't hear from a lot of other people. No, you're right. That's a really great point. Let's get to the stocks. First one up is Berkshire Hathaway, BRK.B, um, the cheaper shares versus BRK.A. So um, why, why do you like this company now? Uh, I think, first of all, it's because we've got what we call a firm pricing environment and property and casualty insurance. And I think the people think of Mr. Buffett as a great investor, and they forget that the preponderance of the operating profit of Berkshire Hathaway actually comes from insurance. So we've seen a, a firm pricing environment in reinsurance, both in uh, life reinsurance and also in property. And this has been 
determined by the unfortunate increase in mortality rates because obviously we had a pandemic and also some of the natural disasters and the use of business interruption insurance. We've also seen that in the personal lines, and in that case, their personal lines business is Geico, that with an increase in um, uh, travel and mobility, with people driving more miles per year, we've had a bit of increased severity and frequency of accidents, and that's led to a firmer pricing environment uh, for personal lines. So they have a number of other great businesses, uh, the Burlington Northern Railroad, which will benefit from what's going on in agriculture, oil and gas and mining, you know, which are, have very strong uh, backdrops. Um, they'll also benefit in their aerospace business, which includes precision cast parts, where they're one of the most uh, important suppliers of components for civilian airspace, uh, for civilian aerospace. So a lot of people, you know, focus on Mr. Buffett as an investor and the stocks that he picks and invests in with his excess capital. But ultimately, we're looking at it as a business Mm -hmm. that is well positioned to grow its operating profit and has shown that it's prepared to aggressively return capital to shareholders via its, its buyback. Yeah, you know, um, David, I think that's such an important point because, you know, even the announcement, and it's all over the media today, that Warren Buffett took a stake in HP. That That's not the business. The business is what you've described. It's these um, steady eddy businesses that are free cash flow generation companies. Absolutely. They're just different than a lot of other insurance companies because they carry a large enough capital position that they're able to make investments in equities. Uh, with a lot of the other insurers, their capital positions are smaller and they have to focus exclusively uh, on fixed income. The other thing is, you know, that they may not be in the position, for instance, to own a utility. So Berkshire Hathaway, I believe, is the world's largest producer of wind and solar power. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway Energy is the utility that produces it. And Mr. Buffett said that uh, he demands a 10% rate of return. So he can avoid the bond market if he's looking for steady income. He has the ability to build utility assets and generate steady income. So there are a whole bunch of things he can do because of his capital position, because of the size and scale of the company and its global diversification in insurance. And is there a dividend on this? No, no, there isn't. He's been his view of it actually sounded an awful lot like uh, my finance professor in school, which is if you need cash, you can sell some stock. Uh, but what has been a change over the last 10 years was he saw his stock as undervalued and has opportunistically gone in and bought it. So that is their method of returning capital to shareholders. I know that he's told journalists in the past that at some point in the future, they might consider a dividend, mm -hmm. but I would suggest that he probably would wait until he's running out of opportunities to invest money. Uh, because the thing about a dividend is you really have to pay it every quarter, whereas with the buyback, they can be op uh, opportunistic and come in when the share is undervalued. But if they're seeing better opportunities to buy private companies or to take public companies private, they'll use mm -hmm. the cash for that instead. It gives them more flexibility to yeah. use a buyback. David, you know, I've been looking at it over, I, over the past number of years, and, and it just seemed to do not a lot. And I'm not sure why, but it has lately. And I'm not sure why. I think it's the firm pricing cycle in insurance because you can see that other names in that space like Allstate or Chubb have similarly reacted in a positive way. 
the other thing I'd mention is they have a very huge cash pile that was earning nothing. And obviously, with the recent increases in interest rates, it's earning more money. But I could say the same is broadly true of other insurers. They generally, that is, the, the personal lines and the commercial lines insurers sit with relatively short-term fixed income positions and benefit from higher interest rates. Did you still buy it today? I mean, I mean, you're recommending it as a top five, but it, is it um, from a valuation perspective because it has performed lately? Would, would, would you buy it today or would you wait for a pullback or will we even get one? We look, our view of, of, of equities is very straightforward. We don't have any holds. We only have buys and sells and the names that we're going to talk about today uh, are buys. Okay. Uh, you know, from my perspective, if something reached a level where we didn't think that there was an appropriate upside relative to alternatives, we'd be looking to harvest the position. So, uh, and we think that discipline of there only being buys or sells, you know, requires us to be very precise uh, yeah. in our judgment on what we do. So that's the way we work. Interesting. Um, let's take a look at the next one in the interest of time. Eli Lilly, why do we like it? Uh, look, I like it for a reason that's a, that's unfortunate, uh, and that is the epidemic in diabetes. And uh, you know they've made tremendous progress in drugs to treat diabetes and also to help uh, put off uh, the the start of full fledged diabetes. So these would be for the patients that are pre diabetic. These GLP two drugs that allow them to stay off of insulin for longer, control their blood sugar for longer. Hmm. So it is unfortunate that that business is growing, but this company has a solution. They've also made some big breakthroughs in Alzheimer's, and I, I understand there are other companies that have met the endpoints on uh, Alzheimer's drugs, but Lilly has a good ecosystem around it where they don't just have a drug, but they also have the diagnostic tools necessary to diagnose the disease, monitor its progress, and that overall ecosystem is, is absolutely critical uh, for that treatment. Um, you know, and they have a, a, a broad drug portfolio, including the only CGRP and migraine, which has ever achieved a full remission, albeit only on a small number of the cases, but nonetheless, uh, a better drug than the other CGRPs for migraine. And I could continue down the list. It's just yeah. a very well-managed science-based company that's been in business for a long time. And unfortunately, we need the products they make. Okay, let's uh, shift to the sector that has uh, far outperformed most other sectors and surprised many investors who have not, who were not positioned correctly. And that, of course, is energy. Uh, one of your top focus names there is Chevron. Maybe talk to us a little bit about Chevron and, um, you know, how, how long you've been in the energy sector, David, because a lot of money managers really, you know, just didn't even pay any attention. It's a, it's a change for us because from... Uh, when we, when I first started my first uh, publicly available mandate in 2004 through 2014, we had very big positions in energy, and we benefited from the energy bull market of the 2000s. And then in 2014, oil went under 100, and as you know, it just kept on going down, and unfortunately, eventually became negative. So we were on the sidelines when we thought that oil was oversupplied. Um, I had no idea that the price would go negative, uh, but I thought that that was a reason to look at the space because I don't think it would get more out of favor. We made a decision about uh, a year, maybe over a bit of, more than a year uh, uh, in the past, you know, from today to get involved, uh, you know, thinking that there was a really interesting opportunity set. And the reason why is because the business basically is refusing to reinvest. 
So if you just told me there's an industry that makes a product people need, but they're refusing to reinvest and they're paying out almost all their free cash flow as dividends, uh, and therefore nobody's adding supply, I'd say that's very interesting. Uh, so, you know, I picked Chevron in particular because of its size and scale, which includes one of the best balance sheets of the integrateds. It has some of the best political risk within its uh, production profile. You know, they're, they're not in Russia, for instance. Um, you know, they have stopped flaring gas in the United States and within five years will be in a position where they don't need to flare gas anywhere in the world. Their safety Why? and their... Well, what the, uh, well, they don't want to flare gas, first of all, because it's not good for the environment. It's also right. a waste. So in the U.S., it's relatively easy. You just put a generator on site, I mean, or you put the gas into pipe. Okay. It's more complicated internationally. If you're operating in the middle of nowhere, you may need to, you know, and again, I'm not an engineer, but I imagine you might have to either find a pipeline or put the gas into tanks and have enough that you can run a generator. But the point is, it's a waste, and it's a waste that they will not be making five years from now. But they've been very good on safety, very good on the environment. Mm -hmm. We're looking for single-digit production growth, which, believe it or not, is best in class for a large oil company starting next year. Mm -hmm. uh, they've, they've been, uh, they pay a progressive dividend, so you know this uh, could move up and down with the commodity price. Um, I, I like the properties they're involved in. We used to own Noble Energy and they bought Noble. Uh, mm -hmm. That gives them good positions in the U.S. and a relatively unique position in the eastern Mediterranean hmm. where they have the natural gas assets offshore Israel where there's a tremendous opportunity not only to deliver this gas into Europe to help solve the issue of uh, being reliant on Russia, uh, but also, you know, as they find more markets for this gas to be able to increase the, increase the production uh, from these reservoirs. Okay. Um, Well-managed, well-financed company. Uh, you know, somebody asked me, why would I pick this over Exxon? You know, I think Exxon's well-managed. I just don't know what to make of having an environmental activist on the board. I am much more, you know, I, I would rather have a board of oil people who want to produce oil and gas in a compliant manner, as mm -hmm. opposed to somebody that I just don't understand. Understood. And um, David, what, what would be a second energy name you would take a look at? Uh, I would recommend looking at Schlumberger. And the reason why I say it is because what you'll notice in a lot of these industries is that the first part of the business that works is, say, the producer whether it be the mining company, the oil and gas company, when their business gets better, they do well. But when they do well, they then go and want to sustain their business, maintain their business, grow their business. So they have to go to pick and shovel providers. So I was going to recommend Schlumberger because it sort of doesn't matter where in the world you want to drill for oil or gas. Uh, Schlumberger can support you. They're, they're leaders in offshore production, leaders in measuring while drilling, uh, they have drill bits, they have drilling fluids. Um, I mean, to be blunt, they have seismic. I really don't, you know, I think they have basically everything. And they have an international footprint. And that's important because, as you know, in a lot of countries in the Western world, the government is not very supportive of oil and gas production. But by being global, they can go to where there are governments that are supportive of oil and gas production. 
the other part about it is it's not just about oil and gas. They have expertise that they have acquired doing offshore oil that also allows them to help install offshore uh, wind energy and maintain offshore wind energy, which has been a growing area. Okay. So we like it as a kind of a uh, picks and shovels play on oil and gas. And these are things that should perhaps even work better than the oil companies as the cycle progresses. Yeah, the next the next iteration, the next derivative. Yes. Um, we've got about a minute or two left, David. So let's talk about your la last pick, Elbit Systems. So Elbit Systems is Israel's largest defense contractor and also uh, one of their only publicly traded defense contractors. Uh, they're leaders in unmanned systems. Uh, through the acquisition of Spartan, their leaders in sauna boys, which are for anti-submarine warfare. They acquired uh, Harris Night Vision, so they're one of the few companies in the world that can do uh, night vision systems. Uh, they're leaders in defense electronics, and that will include fire control system, radars, electronic warfare. And again, like the discussion of Lilly, unfortunately, the world's become a more dangerous place. The recent tragic events in Eastern Europe are drawing more and more attention to the world having become a more difficult place. And the democracies of the Western world need to prepare themselves uh, for the future. And we've seen countries that historically refuse to grow their uh, defense budgets move to increase their defense budgets. It's a growing market, and this company is a solution to that need. Okay. David, we will leave it there. That was a perfect... 2020. So, thank you, though, for all seriousness, for all the great insight and ideas and, um, you know, really trying to manage through what, what is a volatile period uh, with some big um, steady eddies, if you will. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Okay.